0: Hello, everyone. My name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations, a job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Gray Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at greyvikinggames.com and if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion don't forget to head over to patreon.com this show is always going to be free but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it go over, become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk You can find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain, like the country. Yes, I got picked on about that for most of my life. And you can join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. So head over, check all that stuff out while you continue to listen. On the homeward path. How's it going, everybody? I hope your week and a half or two weeks by the time this is uploaded is going well. In between episodes, uh, we just didn't find a good time to record in between the two. In between the end of the work week and then the holiday, and then the the short work week on the other side of the holiday, so. We're, we're going to try to make up for it now as we dive in to Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight is a segment every week where we talk about um, uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-focused card that I feel like are worth more than the price they are being asked. Or more worth more to your game than the price that's being asked for them. And our Uncommon is, by and large, a staple of several archetypes in Pioneer and Modern. And that card is Light at the Stage. Light at the Stage is two and a red, Sorcery. Exile the top two cards of your library. Until the end of your next turn, you may play those cards. And then it has Spectacle for a single red mana. You can cast it for its spectacle cost if an opponent lost life this turn. So as a red divination, this is hashtag fine. Digging deeper, it helps you mitigate mana flood, helps you maintain forward momentum, because this is the kind of card you play in a proactive deck, right? You don't play this card alongside a bunch of counter spells because you don't want to telegraph directly face up to your opponent that you have a counterspell in the wings they will just not play anything and let your counterspell go into exile which is a hundred percent the right decision on their part unless mitigating factors and that's like a whole other discussion but just with the tiniest little sliver of synergy It goes from Red Divination, 3-mana draw 2, to Red Thoughtcast, 1-mana draw 2. And we've seen the hoops players are willing to jump through to play 1-mana draw 2 spells, whether it be in standard or older formats. Uh, Even discounting Thoughtcast, a card like Of One Mind comes to mind. Uh, there's, There's others on the list here. I mean... We've jumped through a lot of hoops for card draw over the years. Dig Through Time is a staple in Pioneer. Treasure Cruise is a staple in Pioneer. And both of those cards are a little bit harder to facilitate than light up the stage. Whether you're getting your synergy from burn spells, evasive creatures, incidental triggers off of things like electrostatic field or uh, firebrand archer, or Gutter Snipe, or whatever. One mana draw twos are powerful. A one mana draw two that dodges Narset and uh, Notion Thief and other cards of that nature also give this card a massive seat at the table when it comes to Commander. So for what it's worth, if that's something you're interested in, and I know more than a few people who are, I'm one of them. It's really good. It's really good. And all of that for the low, low price of $1.35 for the regular printing, or $2.50 for the FNM promo, which is just absolutely gorgeous. And again, it's a one mana draw to it uncommon. And you get the awesome version for $2.50. That, that's, that's money well spent. Uh, moving on to our rare. This one was a little bit hard to, hard to parse. I ended up settling on this one. The card in question is See the Truth. Now it's gonna be in standard for a few more weeks, it feels like. But See the Truth is one in a blue, Sorcery. And the front half of the card is Anticipate. You look at your top three cards, put one into your hand, put the rest on the bottom. But if you cast this spell from somewhere other than your hand, instead add all three cards to your hand. So as a sorcery speed anticipate, it's not the best rate card, but it's not the worst. It can help you dig to the cards that will pay it off later. Whether it be something like Dreadhorde Arcanist, whether it be something like Experimental Frenzy, or, well, I guess Experimental Frenzy's not great with it. Ironically, it's very good with Light Up the Stage. Um, I'm trying to think. Cards like Emergent Ultimatum. It's not the best card to find with it, but it's a card you can find with it. Uh, Experimental Iteration. If you wanna go the standard route. You can do a lot worse on turn four than iteration into land to hand, see the truth to exile, third card to the bottom, play land, slam, see the truth, draw three, if you're not under pressure. Like that's really strong. (laughs) I said, when you get the other trigger, it becomes a draw three for two mana. And again, We've seen players jump through hoops for draw threes for two mana before. Draw threes for two mana are a lot like draw ones for one mana. They're really, really strong, especially in smaller formats. And especially when you can pay them off reliably. I'm honestly a little surprised this card doesn't see more play in standard because of the synergy with cards like Experimental Iteration. I'm surprised it didn't see more play up until its rotation with cards like Dreadlord Dark and Light up the stage in the format. I just, it's it's such an interesting card design for me. And again, it's a draw three for two mana. That's an anticipate on the front side sometimes, and it's a dollar. One dollar. I'll take that action. I don't know about you. Now, moving on to our Mythic, we're on the pricier side of things here, but I have not gotten a chance to talk about this card yet, so I'm going to talk about it, dang it! And the card in question is Saheeli Rai, and this one holds a little bit of a near and dear place in my heart, because Saheeli was one of the first decks I built when I came back to Magic. It was my favorite Planeswalker in Kaladesh. I looked at it and I said, this thing's going to be really stupid if they ever... Accidentally print something stupid for you to make a copy of, and then two months later we got fell at our guardian, and at least locally I looked like a prophet. So, it only t- as I the the first thing I said about Sahili Sahili Rai is one a blue and a red, plain, legendary planeswalker Sahili uh, enters the battlefield with I believe it's three loyalty and has the following abilities. Plus one, scry one, deal one damage to target player. Minus two, create a token that's a copy of target artifact or creature you control. That token, or yeah, target artifact or creature you control. Um, That token is an artifact in addition to its other types, and you exile it at the beginning of the next instep. And then I cannot remember for the life of me what the ultimate loyalty cost is. I know I've resolved it twice, ever. And in both situations, we won those games. But the ultimate is go find, I believe it's up to 5 or maybe three. I think it's three artifacts with different names from your library and put them onto the battlefield. Or maybe it's just two. It may be two artifacts with different names from your library and put them onto the battlefield, regardless. I think it's a minus seven for the ultimate. So Sahili Rai is appropriately... Price tag is right around $7. So, again, on the more expensive side of things. And currently, only legal really in modern. Like, it's legal in Pioneer, but it's not good in Pioneer. Pretty sure it's legal in historic, but I'm also fairly certain it's not good in historic. When I say Sahili is legal, I mean Sahili and Sahili's best friend are legal together. Uh, And Saheeli's best friend said, it only takes one mistake by Magic R&D for this to be an infinite combo enabler. That's it. One mistake. Anything that allows you to blink a planeswalker that this can either directly make a copy of or make a copy of something that can go get you a permanent that you can cycle, you can recycle through some sort of a loop to blink a planeswalker this thing goes infinite the minus two ability is where this card makes its hay because you know the most obvious combo being Felidar Guardian Uh, Felidar Guardian when it enters the battlefield will blink Saheeli and return her directly to the battlefield so that she can then minus two again make another copy Blinker, minus two again, make another copy. Blinker, add infinitum, make as many tokens as you want to, win the game. But even in fair usage, and I have used this in fair usage, full disclaimer. Uh, my build of the Sahili combo deck was a tap out control deck. That treated Sahili plus Felidar Guardian as a six drop that won the game. And some amount of the time you just played the Sahili on turn three to see if they had an out. And you would plus until you found the Felidar Guardian or you found something to make a copy of that would be obnoxious. Making a copy of a Torrential Gear Hulk after you flash it in at their instep cast another instant and then attack them for 10 is really strong and a really quick way to close out a game. That's all I'm saying. But in fa- again, in fair usage she allows you to double up your enter the battlefield triggers and gradually plink away with her plus one. She can also just tutor up missing combo pieces on ultimate. You can You know, go get the rest of your Infinite Artifact Loop. You know, go get Salvaging Station, Blasting Station, or go get, uh, you know, it's a card that has applications beyond just the 60-card formats. She's got some applications for things like Commander. Now, finally, our last card in this week's Budget Spotlight is Karmic Guide. Karmic Guide, which was just recently placed into the modern format in Modern Horizons 2. But we're not talking about it there. Although at least one of the things we can do with this is technically modern legal. It's just not very good. It's not that it's not good. It's not that it's not powerful. It's that it's not consistent and that's the problem. Well, Karmic Guide is three and double white buys you a 3-3 maybe a 2-2 it honestly doesn't matter Uh, with Echo so when it uh, at the beginning of your next upkeep you pay it's Echo cost or you sacrifice it Echo cost being it's mana cost for the most part But in this case, when Karmic Guide enters the battlefield, return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. And the first note I have is, ah, yes. The classic three to four card combo enabler, letting you use your graveyard as your staging ground. What I mean by that is Karmic Guide is one of the linchpin enablers of several different accidental infinite combos. And in one very, very famous example, an intentional infinite combo. That one being the Flash Hulk combo where you would cast Flash, put Protean Hulk into play. Protean Hulk sacrifices itself because you can't pay the cost reduced by up to 2. And when it dies, you go get creatures totaling mana value up to 6. You get the five-mana Karmic Guide. And the one-mana, either Viscera Seer or Carrion Feeder. Karmic Guide returns Protean Hulk to the battlefield, sacrifice the Protean Hulk to whatever your sacrifice enabler was. That, again, triggers the Hulk to go get you six-mana worth of creatures, go get Kiki-Jiki Mirror Breaker, and whatever one mana thing you want. Kikijiki will tap to create a copy of Karmic Guide in response, sacrifice Kikijiki to your combo enabler or your sacrifice enabler, and then proceed to repeat infinitely because the trigger from Karmic Guide will return your Kikijiki to play untapped. It has haste, tap it, make another copy, response, sacrifice it, loop. Make infinite 2-2 flying haste protection from black tokens kill your opponent but seriously though when was the last time anybody tried to play a fair karmic guide that that's the real question about this card right you never put karmic guide into your deck going oh man it's gonna be really cool to reanimate my seven drop on turn five you don't play karmic guide to do nice things You play Karmic Guide to do game ending things. You return a Flicker target that you can blink the Karmic Guide and then bring another creature, like get most of the creatures out of your graveyard, or one of a dozen infinite loops that it could potentially enable. It's just not a fair magic card if you're wanting to play it, and that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. and especially the now low, low, low price of just $1. I mean, one of the least fair cards I've ever played in a game of Magic for $1. I can't argue with it. But that wraps up Budget Spotlight and feeds us into our next segment, Brew of the Week. And this week's Brew of the Week, I've actually, full disclaimer, been playing a good amount of Standard in the last two weeks. Uh, We, due to (laughs) actions beyond our control, shall we say, were forced to move the computer and all of the gaming supplies from mine and my wife's bedroom to the living room. I have a new computer desk, which means I don't have to worry about waking anybody up in the morning or keeping anybody up late at night if I proceed to play the game. So you know, make use of free time to do good things. That's what this podcast was about, right? That's how this podcast came to be. And one of the decks I've seen a good amount of and kind of theory crafted a lot with, but I haven't actually sat down and hammered out the final details on what a list of mine would look like is the Witherbloom tokens deck and I call it Witherbloom tokens sort of tongue-in-cheek but it really is very much more a tokens deck than it is a sacrifice deck. At its core you want to use cards like Hunt for Specimens, Pest Summoning, and Sedgemoor Witch to put a bunch of stuff on the table. You just want to go wide and do it fast. You want to go as wide as possible as fast as possible. Get a bunch of bodies on the table, And then you want to get paid off by cards like Bastion of Remembrance. In conjunction with Bastion of Remembrance, Dina, who's the rest of the card's name, I can't remember. But Dina allows you to double up on your Bastion of Remembrance triggers. Whenever you gain life, each opponent loses one life. And Bastion of Remembrance will then ping for two instead of one. Whenever something of yours dies. And then you play cards like Village Rights and Plum the Forbidden, which is one of the wildest card names I've ever seen, but it's also just objectively one of the coolest Magic card designs I've ever seen too. Like, the fair version is objectively mediocre. Two mana for one... two mana and one life for one card. But once you start sacrificing bodies, it gets a whole lot stronger. And then once you start factoring in things like the Magecraft from Witherbloom Apprentice, uh, Sedgemore Witch, the triggers from Dina, thanks to your Witherbloom Apprentice, like Plum the Forbidden is just a weirdly exciting magic card. But it's a relatively straightforward concept. You want to put a bunch of bodies on the table, and either your opponent tries to kill all of them, at which point you feed all of them to Plumb the Forbidden, get a bunch of triggers off of things like Bastion of Remembrance and Dina, and then rebuild after you've drawn some cards, or you want to get a whole bunch of bodies on the table with Witherbloom Apprentice on the table, and... Either, you know, either double Witherbloom Apprentice or Witherbloom Apprentice plus Dina and then proceed to end step, plumb the forbidden for a billion, make a bunch of tokens if you've got a Sedgemore Witch draw a bunch of cards, keep your life total the same or higher because of all the triggers and then be able to untap and kill your opponent no matter how they block It's just a really interesting sort of all-in take on the tokens deck. It's like equal parts Spellslinger plus Sacrifice plus tokens, but the the core concept of the deck, the basis for what you want to do only works if you can make a lot of tokens. So how do you customize this deck? Well, that's the real intrigue. Because realistically, it becomes a question of which way do you want to lean. You've got three different sets of synergy going on here. Staying green-black makes you play out more like a combo deck, where you just kind of keep things really lean, really efficient, and you try to ignore your opponent as much as possible, do your thing. And if you kill them, you kill them, and if you don't, you don't. You either try to win the game as quickly as possible against an opponent that's kind of slow rolling you or taking some time to get going, or against an opponent who is trying to proactively kill you, you can seek to use the tokens as jump blockers to get to a point in the game where you can make a whole bunch of them alongside at least one payoff and try to fireball your opponent out of the game very similar. It's eerily reminiscent of the original Aristocrats deck, which is to say it was a tokens deck that just had a whole lot of weird synergy kind of piled into it. Splashing Red allows you to lean more into being the Sacrifice deck because you pick up cards like Claim the Firstborn and the Acro in War, which allow you to take and then feed creatures from your opponents gain some amount of incidental value off of them if possible and then feed them to cards like Village Rites, Plum the Forbidden, or Woe Striker and not for nothing there's also the back half of Extus, Awaken the Blood Avatar which makes everybody sacrifice a creature you make a 3-6 which is not legendary I might add, a non-legendary 3-6 that pings them for three every time it attacks and it has haste and i have won an uncomfortable number of games with the rakdos version of this deck by just casting awaken the blood avatar and then do it like sacrifice three creatures to awaken the blood avatar to make it two mana take out a blocker uh, escape a Croxa from my graveyard cast claim the firstborn on Croxa to let it attack now declare attacks ping you for 3 ping you for 3 if your hand is empty and we're attacking for 9 that's just an obnoxious amount of damage 15 out of nowhere is a lot folks splashing white feeds your education because you get to do more learning Uh, You get to add a card like Professor of Symbology, which is both a body for your sacrifice synergies or any other, uh, like, go-wide synergies that you want to do. And it gives you access to to more lessons. You get access to cards like Academic Probation. You get access to cards like... uh, Inkling Summoning that gives you a little bit of insurance against flying creatures, which is something this archetype pretty desperately needs. And you also pick up some interesting cards, a card like Leon and Light Scribe, which plays both reasonably well with the cheaper spells you want to play because you can get aggressive draws that can kind of overwhelm people. But it also plays well even with your more expensive spells, because cards like Inkling Summoning and Pest Summoning make tokens. And even if you're just antheming your team up for one turn, casting another token spell allows you to anthem your team up, and you can attack. The more bodies you make, the faster you get there. You also get access to a card like Clarion Spirit, where if you keep the curve really, really lean, again, you feed further into your token synergy. Because you make more tokens, you also help create some level of insurance against flying creatures. It's just kind of a all-around interesting place to be. You can either be lean green-black and as dedicated to trying to fireball your opponent out as possible. Be Jundy and try to value them out with claim the firstborn, acro war, and your sacrifice stuff. Or you can be Abzan and be all about being as wide as possible like the fact that there's so much customization available for this like base black tokens deck is really cool to me and from an overview perspective if flying and trample aren't super prevalent this archetype can perform it gums up the board and gradually planks away at life totals If you're in a metagame with a lot of evasive threats, though, whether flying, trample, unblockable, uh, first strike, like, it can be difficult to manage sometimes. And if you're in that evasive metagame, it is really hard to find room to play enough things to fix that problem. You know, if you do the AbZen list and play Clarion Spirit, well, by nature, your curve has to come down so you don't get to play more powerful, expensive cards in order to help facilitate the fact that Clarion Spirit's going to keep making you tokens to sacrifice or to throw in the way, as the case may be. Or both, depending on how your game goes. You know, like the the Jund version, well... I take that back, you can't realistically play Luris's Companion in the Abzan version because you really need to play Bastion of Remembrance. It's just, it's a weird archetype that's got a lot of set-in-stone slots, but the number of flex slots is so astonishing because you can branch it into a lot of different colors. The most budget-friendly version was played by Saffron Olive for budget magic on Goldfish just further cementing the idea that this archetype as a whole is just really streamlined and what you want to do with it depends on what part of the archetype that you really want to pay off the most. So that's going to wrap up brew of the week and it's time to talk about our main topic because we've had a lot of band list discourse over the last probably five years A lot of talk about banning cards, why we need to ban cards, which cards need to be banned, and at the core of the discussion, a lot of the time, is whether we need to be talking about banning the cards that enable a synergy or a strategy or a busted something, or whether or not we need to ban the card that pays it off. And I used to be, like, firmly entrenched in one camp or the other. I've been camp enabler, camp payoff exclusively over the years. But more recently, I've come around to more of a measured approach to it that says, you know, the the reality is it's somewhere, it's a gray area, It's somewhere in the middle. So aside from discussions about intrinsic power level and fun factor, most of it divides into two camps. Do we ban the enablers to make payoffs weaker, or are the enablers fine as long as you ban the payoffs? Case number one, your enablers are stronger than payoffs or only enable the same sort of degenerate nonsense. Faithless looting is a great example. As I know, technically, you've got a deck like uh, Mardu Pyromancer that loved playing Faithless Looting as a Brainstorm that you could cast from the graveyard. Like, I get it. But the number of utterly unfair graveyard decks this card fueled was ridiculous. Dredge, Hogak, Light Phoenix. Um hollow one there it is knocking around the brain it's just like there's not a scenario where you're not going to accidentally stumble into something ridiculous with this card even if you're doing something as innocuous as milling you know putting bridge from below in your graveyard so you can set up a synergy turn that's still like real good part of the reason bridge from below got banned that's beside the point did it. I can't remember. I haven't played modern in a long time. Another good example of case number one is the energy sources and Aetherworks Marvel are another clear example because the payoff cards become much worse when the free energy sources go away. And when I talk about free energy sources, I'm talking about cards like the Tomb with Aether and Rogue Refiner that leave behind energy as a bonus strapped on to reasonable rate cards. I'm not talking about cards like Harness Lightning, which was frequently net zero or net one on energy, or cards like uh, Whirler Virtuoso or Bristling Hydro, which were exclusively net zero on the amount of energy they made. And if you wanted them to be better than that, you had to play a card like Winding Constrictor. Like once the free energy went away, all those cards became a lot worse and deck diversity opened up. And then this is a controversial opinion, but the blue cantrips in Modern are a really clear example of this too. Ponder and Preordain. They enable clear consistency in any deck that might want to play them, to the point that at one point early in Modern's history, before those cards were banned, the Infect deck was mono blue. Now, one of the reasons they were able to get away with this also got banned in Blazing Shoal, which was the only non-blue card you played in your deck. And you would Blazing Shoal pitching a Dragon Storm or a Progenitus or whatever you know, 9-mana or 10-mana red card you could pitch to give your Blighted Agent or Animated Ink Moth Nexus plus enough to be lethal. But at its core, the deck was really straightforward. Was looking for very specific cards to find together, and having access to both of these cards in Modern at the same time allowed it to be very, very consistent. And I know there's an argument that you could make that these cards are fine and modern, and I'm willing to have that discussion. I'm not firmly entrenched into the camp of ban these, keep these cards banned, they're too good, in part because I'm selfish and I like playing those cards. But, and then the last example for case number one is... The Callblade standard format without stoneforge mystic callblade was much weaker swords are powerful as is batter skull but finding the right one reliably in any given matchup is what made stoneforge and ultimately the deck as a whole too good was the ability for that card to make sure you didn't have to play multiples of anything other than your core engine pieces. Case number two, payoffs are too good, or the payoff is really, really narrow, and the thing that enables it is not. The easiest question to answer when it comes to payoffs is this card built around in a fair manner. Like, can you build around this card in a way that doesn't break it in half? Example one is Hogak. It's just too easy to enable. There are too many things that put cards in the graveyard and or make creatures that you can tap to Convoke with. Example two, Storm cards in Pauper. You can either ban every cantrip and enabler and ritual that's legal in the format and make the ban list a mile long, or you can ban the like five storm cards. Like the other combo decks are fragile. Decks like One Land Spy, decks like um, Tribe Combo, is it Blitz, what have you? They're fragile. Even with access to cards like Brainstorm, Ponder all of the above. (sighs) So you hit the Storm cards because they make it easy to pay off playing a bunch of cantrips in your deck in a way that directly wins the game now. Example number three, and this is another controversial one, but Walking Ballista and Pioneer. The life-gain decks without Walking Ballista are fine. But it's just too easy to use Walking Ballista as a payoff card. Whether whether you can find a way to make infinite mana, which is what Ballista was featured heavily in in Modern, the Vizier of Remedies Devoted Druid combo allowed you to make infinite green mana, and Walking Ballista is a real good place to put it. or Heliod in Pioneer and Modern it takes two mana alongside Heliod for Ballista to start going infinite you need a Ballista with at least two counters on it and then you just you know Pay your two mana, give it life link, remove a counter, shoot something for one gain of life, put it back, and you go infinite, and that game is over. So, I mean, it's really, really, like, painfully easy to, to take walking ballista from a cute two-mana thing that sometimes keeps the game locked down You know, sometimes helps you plank through annoying creatures and, you know, maybe helps you deal the final three or four damage when you flood out, gives you something to do with your mana while it's on the table. It's really easy for it to go from that to, oops, I won the game for three mana. And for that reason, Walking Ballista is a really clear example of a payoff card. That got banned for being way too easy to enable and and was a payoff for a lot of different enablers. Case number three is both, neither, or power level problems. Wilderness Reclamation enabled cards like Nexus of Fate and Expansion Explosion, but it also paid you off for building your deck at instant speed around it. Like, I know at one point the best Reclamation decks were playing cards like Escape to the Wilds and Nyssa, and both of those cards were bananas alongside Wilderness Reclamation. But aside from cards you were casting after you got the Reclamation online to take full advantage of getting to untap with it, like, it was... It was just a really messed up magic card because you would be able to deploy sorcery speed threats and then protect them because you played in your deck. It's the same issue of Sword and Feast and Famine when Stoneforge Mystic was legal, but this time it wasn't a situation where you could hit the consistency of the deck without hitting the thing that was letting you do that. You had to hit the thing. The Artifact Lands are another good example between Modern and Pauper. Artifact Lands are clear examples because they both enable and pay off the Affinity Strategy. Which is to say, the more artifacts you have on the field, the cheaper your spells are, and the more artifacts you can play, the cheaper your spells are. And then you get to play things like Thought casts that draw you into more artifacts, which you can then play. And then you can play a Cranial Plating because you can rip through your deck in a hurry with cards like Thoughtcast and the the new 7-drop that I can't remember the name of. You can rip through your deck in a hurry, find everything, and kill your opponent out of nowhere. And then, you know, at minimum, Artifact lands in... It, especially the new ones indestructible artifact lands alongside cards like in artifact are great let me just make this 2 mana 5-5 five, five. that you can't fatal push or blood chief's thirst or lightning bolt or wild slash or whatever right like that's really good Sensei's Divining Top and Cauldron Familiar were due in part to the logistics of them as much or more than they were due to the the actual like power level of this energy that they enabled. With with Cauldron Familiar and that deck, they could have picked, they could have just thrown a dart at it. It could have been either Cauldron Familiar or Witches Oven, they decided to ban the Familiar so that Witch's Oven was still playable as a way to shield your creatures from adventures and to, you know, give you a source of food for the food deck that might still be out there versus banning the Witch's Oven and then the Cauldron Familiar is still there, like, occasionally picking up an extra food to kill somebody. Like, Cauldron Familiar was going to be a lot less useful than Witch's Oven in that scenario, but... It was banned in large part because of how long it made games take. Less so because of how good it was. And then countless others were due to suppressing diversity within archetypes and you know Cards like the energy enablers, cards like Uro, cards like Omnath, um, Counterbalance, Splinter Twin. These were cards that when they were legal, there was no excuse not to play them because it was just clear examples of power level being pushed so far. Or they did something similar to what the deck you were trying to build did anyway so it was really easy to incorporate them and that's a reasonable reason that's a mouthful in it to ban something so why is this important why is it important to understand like why cards get banned or like how to the psychology behind banning cards and the answer is twofold. One, I've seen more cards banned in Standard in the five years I've been back than in the eight years before combined. And arguably it was over the course of a three-year stretch, right? Eldraine, or not even three-year stretch, just since Eldraine got introduced in Standard. More cards banned in Standard in that time frame than in the other but 16 years I've been following Magic. Put together. That's ridiculous. Like, the only other bannings I ever saw in Standard before I stopped playing were Jason Stoneforge Mystic. And then before Eldrain, it was uh, Smuggler's Copter, Emrakul, cool, The Promised End, Felidar Guardian. Aetherworks Marvel, I tend with Aether Rogue Refiner, Ramin Up Ruins, and Rampaging for Usadon. Since October of twenty nineteen, it's been OCO, okay, Veil vale of Summer. Uh Once Upon a Time. Escape to the Wilds, Omnath, Lucky Clover, Uro, Wilderness Reclamation, Fairy Time Raveler, uh, Field of the Dead, almost forgot that one. Like, there's been so many cards banned. So understanding why they ban cards is a good reason that feeds into number two here which is from an investment perspective it's important to try and understand the process behind why things get banned in order to maximize the value on your investment because if you can't play with the cards you bought you didn't you, you have to spend more money and that's not great so with that in mind that's all I've got for this week everybody you got questions comments concerns leave them down below in the comment section if you're on any of the places where you can uh if you're watching this on youtube don't forget to like comment subscribe if you are wanting to join the conversation a little bit more directly uh twitter i'm at homeward path mtg facebook my name is adam spain you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders uh you can if you want to become a patron of the show patreon.com slash homeward mtg always going to be free but if you want a more direct hand in how it goes that's the way to get it and with that all out of the way let's get them pulled up I haven't done this in a while. It's time for hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. First one is from legendary member of the commander community, Shivambot. Did you hear about the Lord of the Rings set focused on temporary cards created by spells or creatures with an emphasis on treasures, food, and small creatures? Yeah, it's apparently a Tolkien-based set. tolkien based. So come on. Wasted. I can't hear any laughter. And then most recently, courtesy of Emma Partlow. Why do bar why do musicians or bards make great scavengers? It's because they're always looting. L-U-T-I-N-G. Wonderful. I need these D D puns in my life. Inject them directly into my veins, please. Keep sending them. So That's all we got for this episode, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. With that in mind, before we sign off, remember, everybody's going through something. Don't be the reason why someone's going through something, okay? So laugh hard. Have more intelligent band discussions. But be kind. And we'll catch you next episode.